Welcome to Open Spaces from Wyoming Public Radio News. I'm Bob Back. And I'm Melody Edwards. Coming up on the show, we'll hear how nine respected women on the Wind River Indian Reservation are taking a unique approach to helping victims of sexual assault. I feel that that's what we bring to is that holistic idea of healing and using our culture to heal them. Meanwhile, state officials are looking at the issue of putting minors on the sex offender registry. We'll talk about the EPA saying that ozone levels have improved in the Pinedale area. Something had to be done, and uh, everyone recognized that. And we'll look at Wyoming's two outstanding running backs, Sean Wick and Brian Hill. I feel like we both share similar abilities. You know, we're both fast, both strong, smart runners. Those stories and more are coming up in Open Spaces from Wyoming Public Radio News. Welcome to Open Spaces from Wyoming Public Radio News. I'm Melody Edwards. And I'm Bob Beck. By some estimates, sexual assault on U.S. Indian reservations is the worst in the world, with one in three Native women assaulted during their lifetime. It's higher than war-torn Serbia or the Republic of Congo. And the Wind River Indian Reservation in Wyoming is no exception. It's the kind of big issue that would normally scare most people away, but not nine courageous women who are trying a totally new approach, delivering emergency care in person. Wyoming well, Public Radio's Melody Edwards has more. It all started with letters to the editor of the Wind River News. It has been five years since you raped my daughter. In the beginning, I was angry. That's Eastern Shoshone member LaDon Olson. I was angry you shamed my life-giving feminine. I will do it as long as I breathe. The morning of Thanksgiving is when she was raped. So in every Thanksgiving issue, um, I write a letter. She kept writing even when friends warned her that the alleged attacker's family might retaliate, which is common when victims try to prosecute. Take extra insurance out on your house. This is what I was told. Also, you know, is your, is your house bulletproof? <laughs> and it is. It's brick, so it's like... But the bullets never came. Instead, she found support from her tribe who invited her to help start a program to address the problem. That's when she discovered Safe Stars, a growing national effort on reservations that trains respected women in the community as first responders for victims of rape, providing whatever support a victim needs, physical, legal, or spiritual. These women even take a lifelong vow to protect victims who come forward. It's the brainchild of Hallie Bonger-White, an attorney for the Southwest Center for Law and Policy. Several years ago, we realized that there was a huge disconnect between the volume of sexual violence in Indian country and the criminal justice, health care, social services, and community responses to sexual violence. For instance, there's not a single sexual assault nurse examiner on the Wind River Reservation. And Bonger White says rural hospitals just aren't equipped to provide the kind of culturally sensitive services Native victims might need. The Safe Stars women aim to bring those services to victims, in person. Bonger White says they adapted a 40-hour nursing course and now are training lay Native women as sexual assault nurses in 10 tribes, with requests for many more around the country and the world. They are able to photograph injuries. They're able to use buckle swabs if there's clothing with semen on it or panties have saliva from the perpetrator on them. They're able to package all the evidence. 
Now these are all locked, so I don't remember if I left them. Oh, I did. <laughs> Northern Arapaho Millie Friday is a trained safe star. She unlocks her rape kit to show its contents. It's a black metal box specially designed by the FBI just for safe stars to use in the field. There's the pill I was, the emergency contraceptive pill I was telling you so about. So that's the morning after pill there? Yes. Yeah. Friday plans to stock her rape kit with healing plants. I would add sweet grass and then I'd even add cedar and then um, sage is good too. Friday volunteered to become a safe star after her own daughter was raped by a close relative. In the hours afterward, Friday witnessed how badly the hospital and law enforcement handled her daughter's case. We went straight to the emergency room, and from the emergency room, um, FBI was contacted. Uh -huh. So she never even had that choice of what she wanted to do. It was just straight in. And then all, all of the re-victimization that happened in the hospital. Like being asked to remove her clothes and put her feet in stirrups, Friday says this insensitivity is one reason why few Native women report their assaults. Nationally, fewer than 68% of assaults are ever reported, and that number is likely much, much higher on the reservation. Even now, almost 70% of all reported assaults on the reservation never make it to trial, let alone a conviction. But Friday thinks more women will report with the help of Safe Stars. The question is, will more reports turn into more convictions? So one issue as a prosecutor is how is the evidence collected by the Safe Stars going to hold up in federal court? Assistant U.S. Attorney Carrie Jacobson. Because it wasn't collected under sterile circumstances, and so if you've got physical evidence being collected out of a Safe Stars car or home, then there's going to be at least the specter of potential tainting. The rape kit does include latex gloves, a drop cloth, and other items to assure sterile evidence. But Jacobson says even if Safe Stars can't get many convictions, they will do something even more important. Give a victim a circle of respected women to protect her. Many times, she says the victim is so scared of retaliation, she stops cooperating with her lawyer. Safe Star Millie Friday says it's a cycle of abuse and silence that comes from historical trauma left over from when Native children were sent to boarding schools. Because the majority of them were parochial schools, you know, the nuns and some of the people in that worked in those boarding schools and, and then them becoming perpetrators later in life and the cycle going round and round and round. Friday says Safe Star's goal is to heal that historical trauma. She has a message for the new generation of young women. We're going to stop that cycle of violence. And how we're going to stop it is that when you get older, you know it's not normal. You don't raise your kids that way. You hug your kids and you tell them, I love you and you mean it. That's how we're going to stop this cycle. The Wind River Safe Stars plan to complete their final phase of training and begin offering their services in coming months. For Wyoming Public Radio, I'm Melody Edwards. A decade ago, a federal law created a national sex offender registry and required each state to update it regularly. Most people associate those registries with adults, but the Adam Walsh Act also mandated the creation of registries for children found guilty of sex crimes. Recently, the practice of putting minors on sex offender registries has come under scrutiny. Here in Wyoming, state officials are debating whether to change the system. But as Wyoming Public Radio's Miles Bryan reports, there aren't easy answers. Six years ago, Charlene Southworth discovered something no parent wants to think possible. Her 15-year-old son, Chris, had molested his younger brother. 
It was disturbing to me. I didn't want to, I, I, it's like I didn't want to hear that my son wouldn't do something like that. Soon after, it came out that Chris himself had been molested for years by an older stepbrother. Southworth told the authorities about what her son Chris had done, and he was sent to a juvenile sex offender therapy program at Teton Youth and Family Services near Jackson Hall. He spent a year there, and when he headed back home to Cheyenne, he was doing much better. He started to mature like a normal 17-year-old. When Chris went to Teton Youth in 2010, Wyoming didn't put juveniles on the sex offender registry unless they were convicted in adult court. But in 2011, the state changed its statute to start registering minors in order to come into compliance with the federal Adam Walsh Act. And Chris was retroactively labeled a sex offender. Wyoming doesn't make juvenile registry information available to the general public, but Chris's status was available to all his neighbors and everyone at his school. His mom says that brought on a lot of feelings. Scared, frustrated. He didn't want to be out in public like that. And as a kid, trying to fit in. And After he was registered as a sex offender, Chris's mental health took a rapid turn for the worse. A year later, he took his own life. Southworth says she thinks about the last time she saw her son almost every day. I just remember, you know, he steps out of the truck, gives me a hug. Love you, Mom. See you tonight, Mom. And then he does that. Chris's death is a worst-case scenario for a minor who ends up on the sex offender registry. But getting registered is fairly common. Since 2011, Wyoming has been putting kids on the sex offender registry for a broad range of offenses. Recently, state lawmakers met to consider whether that range is too broad. Bruce Berkland is the director of Teton Youth and Family Services. So this, this little cabin is the counseling office for... Here at Teton Youth, counselors work with kids who were victims of sex crimes as well as juvenile sex offenders. Brooklyn says a lot of those offenders are technically in their mid-teens, but... You know, developmentally their age is, and emotionally their age is much more around eight or nine. Juvenile sex offenders reoffend at a much lower rate than adult offenders, according to the Department of Justice. And Brooklyn says his therapy is designed to help them build healthy relationships with their peers. He says he's not advocating for the registry to go away. Some minors are a real threat. The juvenile who's looking for multiple opportunities and just prefers and likes to have contact with younger children would be high risk to reoffend and should be on the registry. Instead, Berkland says the system needs more discretion in figuring out who needs to be registered. Brian Skorik is the head of the Wyoming Prosecutors Association. Across the board, prosecutors believe that some juveniles need absolutely to be registered and some don't. And that's based on history of the juvenile, the offense that was actually committed. Skork says that before 2011, prosecutors made the call of whether to register using a whole checklist of risk factors, like whether the offender had more than one victim, the offender's age, and their mental health status. But these days, registration is based entirely on the offense. Skork says that's led some prosecutors to try and avoid the issue entirely. There are a few prosecutors around the state that specifically don't charge uh, the act that was committed uh, in hopes that the juvenile wouldn't have to be registered. We are uh, criminalizing normative child sexual behavior in, in, in large fashion. 
Nicole Pittman is a director at the national advocacy group Impact Justice and one of the few people working to change this practice full-time. Pittman has interviewed hundreds of kids on sex offender registries, and she says at least 20% of them had attempted suicide. And although Wyoming and a few other states make juvenile sex offender registry information available only to neighbors, Pittman says it's easy for those neighbors to post that info on privately run websites. So we have had people that we've interviewed that have been killed subsequently um, by vigilantes. People really fear and think the worst when they see this information. These are his ashes. Ever since her teenage son Chris took his own life after being put on the sex offender registry, Charlene Southworth has kept his ashes in an urn on a shelf in her Cheyenne home. She would like to scatter the ashes on Chris's favorite trail in the wilderness around Jackson, but she's waiting, she says, until justice is done. He was a human being that was hurt, and nobody would do anything about it. What happened to him shouldn't have happened to him. For Wyoming Public Radio, I'm Miles Bryan. When we come back, we'll visit a story on functional art for the Teton County Library and preview the UW Cultural Affairs schedule. This is Open Spaces. Welcome back to Open Spaces. I'm Bob Beck. And I'm Melody Edwards. As students head back to school, the finishing touches are being made to a year-long project for students in Jackson Hole High School's Digital Fabrication Lab. The students have been designing functional art for Teton County Library's Teen Wing. The artistic makeover is being installed this weekend with an open house planned for late October. Rebecca Huntington visited the students at the Fab Lab during the project's creation. Inside Jackson Hole High School's Digital Fabrication Lab, 3D printers hum as students use a more primitive device to assemble some life-sized models. The students are getting ready to present these prototypes to their client, the Teton County Library. Our intrepid group of stakeholders. (laughs) Welcome to the Fab Lab once again. Sophomore Shaylai Funk is presenting for one of two teams that the library has invited to design a public art installation for the library's teen wing. We have our prototype here. We wanted to target the issues of privacy, noise reduction, and also having like an area that's both social, but you can also study in it as well. Although the students are presenting the concept to library staff, the real target audience will be the teens themselves. Student Bailey Poor says the goal of the project is to get more teens into the library, something she admits that she and others rarely do. It was originally pitched to us as an opportunity to create a piece of public art. But what we soon realized was that none of us had really been to the teen space. So we wanted it to make a functional piece of art that would change that and bring people in. In other words, to create a piece of art that provides a quiet place to do homework or a fun place to be social. Sophomore Michael Thorkelson says he was surprised at just how much autonomy the students were given. I was actually surprised about how much like freedom they gave us. They just trusted us. They're like, here, we need you guys to come to the library. Go build something that will make you come. The students used an approach called design thinking that encouraged them to listen to their clients' needs and then design a solution. What they learned from talking to library staff and teens is that teens wanted more quiet study space. Sound travels easily along the megaphone-shaped wing, 
So the project morphed from wall art to modular furniture designed to help dampen sound. So what we have today is a update and... Bland Hoke, artist in residence for Jackson Hole Public Art, coordinated the project. He says the project's evolution shows just how design thinking works. Moving from a, a wall mural to a kind of replacement of all the furniture in the space is really a big, big change. But it's indicative of the design thinking process and not sticking to any, any one idea until you found one that really resonates with a bunch of different people. And that was part of the fun for student Michael Thorkelson. It's like a puzzle. Like you have to be able to put all the pieces together and also make it fit and make it work and make sure that people like it. The final design chosen by library staff will be S-shaped study pods with a series of panels that teens can open or close to create more or less privacy. The pods can be arranged to create individual or group study spaces, which will also feature art reflective of the region's topography. (laughs) Students use the Fabrication Lab's laser engraver to create cardboard cutouts to test how the design would fit in the space. Then they built life-sized models. As they presented their prototypes to library director Deb Adams, she quizzed them on their calculations, making sure they were mindful of building codes. Yeah, I just need you guys to measure and just be sure, okay, if I move the computer table, I still have a three-foot walkway here, three-foot, and, and that's just a safety issue, so that anybody, you know, if there's a fire, everybody can get out safely. Those are just the kind of real-world challenges that Sammy Smith, director of the Digital Fabrication Lab, says she's glad to see the students wrestle with. The kids would literally walk out of here and they're like, my brain really hurts. That was really hard what we did today. But we think we solved the problem. And Smith says those are just the kind of lessons that really stick. If all goes according to plan, the student design study pods will be installed in the library's teen wing in August. For Wyoming Public Radio, I'm Rebecca Huntington in Jackson. Late next month, the fall 2015 season of cultural programs at the University of Wyoming will get underway with a September 29th performance of Hoon Hurtu Tuvan Throat Singers. It's an extremely diverse schedule that wraps up in April. University of Wyoming Director of Cultural Programs and Director of Fine Arts Outreach Janelle Fletcher says they're doing some new things. The exciting thing about this year is for the first time ever, we're introducing um, a sort of world music in Hoon Hurtu, which are Tuvan Throat Singers. Um, as well as family programming with the Okie Dokie Brothers. Those are two uh, different genres that have never uh, been a part of the cultural programs series before. So it's very exciting for families and those who enjoy world music to now have have a home, a place within our series uh, to come and experience world-class performances of, of those genres. I want to hear about this first act because we have somebody who sings his own three-part harmony. We do. Um, If you were to ask me how that is possible, (laughs) I cannot answer the question, Um, but it's really fascinating. It's incredibly unique. Um, A a funny little anecdote about this group. They've played up in Matitsi before, and um, because they come from a um, sort of cowboy region in Mongolia, uh, they relate quite well to those those individuals living up in Matitsi, and they have sold out gymnasiums up in northwest Wyoming. So we hope everyone down here in the southeast Finds them just as exciting. So they're, and they're, this is a big time group though. Yes. Yeah. Yes. They, they've traveled all over the all place. All over the world. Now, uh, that'll be, kick things off on the 29th, and then the 
October 10th concert, equally as exciting. Uh, you've got uh, the SF Jazz Collective or San Francisco Jazz Collective, the music of Michael Jackson. Yeah, so this is a really interesting group. Um, it is a group of um, jazz musicians that come from a very large pool of extremely well-known jazz musicians, and they assemble in um, groups of 8 to 10 every year, and they and they do a touring period. And each year in their um particular assembly, they decide what sort of retrospective they're going to do. For example, the first year they ever tried this project, they did the music of Stevie Wonder. And so uh, this is our first opportunity to have them in Laramie because they are coming out this direction. And uh, it just so happens that they're doing a retrospective of Michael Jackson music. So it'll be really, really fun to see some of the best musicians in the world tackle Michael Jackson music as a jazz musician would. Tell me about this group on the 20th who's coming in, the quartet. The Ataka Quartet. Um, They are a traditional string quartet. They're quite a young quartet, so it's very exciting to have them on our campus here. Um, They have some residencies that they have been in on the East Coast, and uh, the reviews are all coming out as indicating their playing is incredibly stunning. So we're very, very excited to introduce a young string quartet then on uh, November 5th, you've got the voice play a cappella. Uh, tell me about this group. These guys are fun. Um, and if you have some time, I highly recommend going to YouTube and looking them up. They do these top 10 mashups. Uh, for example, they have a, a mashup of top 10 songs of 2014. Uh, they did some singing on the sing-off, and they often do some uh, singing with other people that you've probably seen on TV or you've heard in different places, and they get together and they do a lot of YouTube things. Um, that's a very big medium for them and getting their name out. So they'll come to campus and, and we've been told that their show is extremely fun and original and uh, they are partners. This show is a partner for us with Friday Night Fever. Now you, They're the first of two acapella groups that you've got on the schedule. You've got this one and you've got another one in March. Five acapella groups in three years. Why so many? That's a great question. Acapella is actually the quickest growing thing on college campuses nationwide, both to listen to and participate in. So it's extremely popular. Um, as I'm sure you know, there is a show called The Sing-Off now where acapella groups go and compete uh, for a recording contract. Pentatonics came out of that show, which everybody knows the name Pentatonix any longer anymore. So uh, acapella is extremely popular and it is one way for us to engage college audiences. Um, families are also quite uh, crazy about acapella as well. So uh, we do make sure we include quite a bit of it because it is so popular. Yeah, You know, I'm talking about the audience a little bit. I, I know that uh, there would be some who would think that cultural programs sometimes skews to, towards an older audience. Mm-hmm. What efforts are being made to try maybe bring some younger folks in? Well, um, the Okie Dokie Brothers is certainly a leap in that direction with some family programming this year. Um, and acapella, of course, is a leap in that direction. Another thing that we like to do is, wherever possible, include master classes and residencies so that they're working um, with not just music and theater and dance students on campus, but anytime we can send them into um, a theater group, into a, a English classroom or or anything unique that we can do like that to engage college students, high school students, junior high students, we we certainly like to do. Um, But it is true that audiences for this sort of music are aging. And so we are making every effort and using all of our creative thinking skills to engage younger crowds. Do you want to finish off the season? You have November 20th, you have Christina and Michelle Naughton on piano? Yes. So we've never done duo piano before um, in the classical realm. We have done jazz duo piano before. Christina and Michelle are actually twins. 
So this will be very fun. They will come to campus and they will play the Mozart Double Piano Concerto with the Symphony Orchestra. And then they will stay for a couple of days and perform on Friday night, the 20th of November, uh, in a duo piano recital on campus. And they will be really wonderful. Um, if you've never had the opportunity to see a duo piano recital, you should come. It's extremely exciting. They'll play on uh, two, uh, four hands on one piano, and they'll also play two hands on two pianos. We will come back and, and talk about the spring schedule, but are there a couple of highlights we should definitely mention before we let you go? Uh, for the spring schedule, sure, certainly. I would recommend not missing Avi Avital. He's doing a programming uh, program called Between Two Worlds, um, and it's very exciting. He'll be traveling with an accordion player and a percussionist, which is really, really fun. Um, Complexion's Contemporary Ballet is absolutely stunning. So if you like dance, we recommend you not miss them as well. And, uh, of course, State Parks has partnered with us for the Okie Dokie Brothers, and we're expecting a really, really enjoyable, fun family show. So I'd highly recommend getting tickets for that. This was probably quick for a lot of people. If uh, they want to go on your website, I imagine there's a rundown of all these folks. Absolutely. Um, as well as our brochure will be coming out soon. Uh, and we'll happy, happily mail those to you if you're not on our list. And uh, tickets, everything that you need is available on the website. Now, can you tell us how people would get ticket information if they're interested in buying season tickets or anything like Certainly. that? Certainly. Uh, the easiest way to go about that is to call the Fine Arts Box Office, which is 307 or on the web at uio.edu slash fine arts. Okay, Janelle Fletcher, a pleasure. Thank you so much, and we wish you well with this season. Thanks, Bob. When we come back, we'll discuss the Environmental Protection Agency report that ozone levels in the Pinedale area have dropped dramatically, and we'll have a story on the challenge of elder care. This is Open Spaces. Welcome back to Open Spaces from Wyoming Public Radio News. I'm Melody Edwards. And I'm Bob Beck. Four years ago, ozone in the Pinedale area was compared to that of Los Angeles. The culprit was enhanced energy development in the area. The area was listed by the Environmental Protection Agency as a non-attainment area for ozone pollution under the Federal Clean Air Act. But this week, the EPA said that efforts to reduce those levels to healthier standards have worked. Well, I mean, Outdoor Council Chief Legal Counsel Bruce Pendry has been following the issue very closely, and he says the response to the problem was excellent. The state has been on a good track. Uh, they've taken a lot of steps uh, to reduce air pollution in the Evergreen River Basin, and we're, we're very supportive of those efforts. And, and I think we're seeing a, a positive outcome from them here. Um, you know, the EPA uh, is making a determination uh, that the area, for at least the three years that they've analyzed here, uh, 2012, 13, and 14, um, is in compliance with the uh, ozone national standard. Uh, so th this is a positive um, step in the right direction. It's also got to show you that, um, you know, when, when industry or others want to, they can resolve problems like this. Well, I, I think so. And, and you know, um, the, the Clean Air Act is a big hammer. Uh, there, there's no doubt about it. It, it can, you know, really uh, slow things up, disrupt things, um, create difficulties uh, when, when its full, you know, regulatory might uh, comes, comes down. Um, 
And, and we were starting to see that in the upper Green River Basin. It was headed in the wrong direction. Uh, we were starting to see some extraordinarily high ozone levels over there. Uh, this has really severe implications for public health, uh, and, and it's not something um, that, that can be left in place if, if we want to try and protect public health. Uh, so something had to be done. And uh, everyone recognized that, uh, the state, industry, certainly environmental groups like us, um, just many citizens uh, in the Upper Green River Basin. It's been amazing how many, you know, um, citizens up in that area have stepped forward on this. And, and so, you know, it demanded attention, and uh, it got it. <laughs> and, and this is an indication that, that uh, it's paying off. What were some of the biggest changes? I mean, can, can you feel comfortable in commenting? Was there anything or a couple of things that, that really changed that seemed to make a big difference? Well, you know, of course, uh, there's no denying uh, that, you know, because of the low prices for natural gas that we've seen for the last five years or so, um, there has been less drilling activity. Uh, so that's probably been a factor here. Uh, likewise, um, you know, the atmospheric conditions, the uh, weather conditions probably haven't been quite as, uh, not quite as favorable for creating ozone as, as maybe they were uh, back in 2011 uh, when, when things really got out of control. Um, so those have been sort of things that occurred that uh, maybe are not under anyone's uh, control, uh, but but have been positive um, for for the ozone situation. Um, but then on top of that, uh, there's been many efforts made by the state, uh, in particular, to reduce air pollution uh, that obviously have had a significant impact. And the two that I especially would note was in 2013, uh, the Air Division upgraded, uh, in, improved, in, increased the stringency of uh, what's called the presumptive best available control technology guidance, um, which amounts to regulation um, up, that supplied to pollution sources in the Upper Green River Basin. Uh, so those 2013 revisions and upgrades uh, helped. And then just this last spring, uh, as you may know, after a long, uh, very lab laborious process, um, uh, the Environmental Quality Council approved uh, new regulations that apply to existing sources of emissions. Uh, the, the other thing that I just mentioned, what we call the PBACT uh, guidance, um, that only applies to new and modified sources. Uh, but this past spring, um, regulations were put in place that apply to uh, existing sources of emissions. And that was a significant step forward, uh, too. So I think those two things, and I hope this hasn't gotten too technical, <laughs> um, but those two things, the PBACT guidance and these existing sources regulations, I think have had a really strong impact. Hey, any worry at all that we could go backwards on this? Little or none. Um, you know, the EPA rules and regulations that apply to all of this um, make it extremely unlikely that there will be what's called backsliding. Uh, that's, that's the term that, that's often used is backsliding. And, and there's strong pro provisions in place to prevent backsliding. And so I think something that's really important to recognize and, and this gets a little hard for me maybe to use the exact right um, technical magic words, 
But even though EPA has found that the area has been in compliance with the ozone standard for the last few years, the area is still in non-attainment. It, it is still a non-attainment area under the Clean Air Act. And so many of the provisions that, that regulate pollution in the area are, are still in place, and that's not going to change uh, just because of this finding. For, for things to move toward uh, a situation where the area is called in attainment and, and you know fully back into a clean air status, first of all, the state will have to petition the EPA to modify what's called the State Implementation Plan, or SIP. Um, that, that will take a significant effort by the state, uh, and that's a full rulemaking process. Uh, it'll call for more EPA notices in the Federal Register. It will call for public comment opportunities, et cetera, et cetera. But even if um, you know, that effort is, is uh, undertaken, the EPA rules also uh, have in place what's called maintenance requirements. The state will have to put in place what's called a maintenance plan for a 10-year period, uh, so a long period of time. They're going to have to demonstrate that they're going to maintain this clean air status. Um, that is, again, there's a strong presumption under the EPA regulations that we're not going to have any backsliding. Um, and so I think that there's little little likelihood of going backwards, and I feel confident that the Air Division, uh, even though we're seeing this step forward now, is going to stay you know strong on air pollution regulation in the area. Bruce, thanks so much. Okay, well, thank you. Bruce Pendry is the chief attorney for the Wyoming Outdoor Council. Moving from energy to health care, most rural communities in the U.S. are elderly communities. Fifteen percent of Wyoming's population is over 65, and a high percentage of them live on ranches and in small towns. But with younger generations leaving the ranch for other jobs, there are few staying behind to take care of them. They could move to nursing homes, but as Wyoming Public Radio's Melody Edwards discovered, Wyoming seniors are often insistent that they want to stay home even if it means a snowmobile ride out in the winter. It's an ordinary Tuesday at the Senior Center in Dixon, population 97. After lunch, Harry Russell sits down with his friends for a game of cribbage. What's not ordinary is that Harry Russell is 103 years old and still lives by himself on the ranch he worked his entire life. After the game, Russell's caregiver drives him home a few miles outside of town. From his window, he has a view of Baker Peak, where his family homesteaded land in the late 1800s. i got a good life. I've got friends around me. The only thing I don't have is my saddle horse. I'm not busy working. I like to work. Caregiver Rose Norris. He does his dishes. He cooks. He takes care of his personal hygiene. He takes seed out to the birds. Up till a couple years ago, he grew a garden. But Russell has had several accidents that forced him to use his emergency button to dial local dispatch. Recently, he caught the flu and couldn't breathe and ended up in the hospital for weeks. And then, just a few weeks ago... I took a shower and I 
put on my other clothes. I slipped and I fell down and I could not get back up. So I knew I could reach that button, so I did. And it wasn't long. I had help. So now I've put my other clothes on in the bedroom. It's because of accidents like these that Russell recognizes he needs a caregiver to help clean his house and drive him to town. He has three children, but the closest lives in Gillette, five hours away. Caregiver programs like this are popular with seniors who don't want to or can't afford to live in a nursing home. But in rural Wyoming, it does present challenges. Wyoming Aging Division Director Tim Ernst gives an example of a man in his 80s who lives 35 miles from the closest town. They had to snowmobile up there a couple times to just make sure that he was okay. Ernst says he didn't want meal delivery or other help. He asked for only one thing. We were able to hire somebody and go up and cut a winter's worth of wood for him because that was his only source of heating in his home. Ernst says the cost of a few cords of wood is significantly less than a nursing home, which can cost up to $8,000 a month. He says, sure, ethical questions arise, letting elderly live alone so remotely. But his agency's philosophy is seniors are still adults with certain rights. When they say, I'm not going to come down, I'm not going to move into the community, we have to respect that decision. Everybody has the choice to make a bad decision. In tiny Dixon in southern Wyoming, most people agree letting seniors age at home is the right choice. Jody Willie is the director of the Village Program in the Little Snake River Valley. It's a national project to help elders age at home. The closest nursing home is 40 miles away, and it's in Colorado. She says institutionalization is a killer of rural elderly. And I'll be honest with you, um, there's not very many good outcomes. Six months to a year maybe is the longest I've had one of our residents that came out of our program go to the nursing home, and, and that's about the longest they live. She says her program could help even more seniors stay at home, but the Dixon Health Clinic recently closed down its hospice care program that sent qualified nurses to help people stay at home to die. Leonard Kay is the director of the University of Maine's Center on Aging. He says such gaps in care are a national problem. The bad news is that in rural communities, our formal network of health and human services is uneven at best, and resources are scarce. But Kay says it wouldn't take much for programs like the one in Dixon to change that. Local communities need to take action. They need to be advocates for themselves. Frequently, the kinds of programs we're talking about can be organized and, and maintained at very little cost. Kay says it takes a whole community to help seniors like Harry Russell live out their lives in the place they love. And as far as Russell is concerned, he's not moving to a nursing home anytime soon. They don't say nurses home to me. Look, I still talk. I'm my own boss for a while. The Little Snake River Valley Village Program hopes to return hospice services to the area and build an assisted living facility in coming months. For Wyoming Public Radio, I'm Melody Edwards.
When we come back, the University of Wyoming football team is hoping to ride a pair of running backs to success this year. This is Open Spaces. Welcome back to Open Spaces. I'm Melody Edwards. And I'm Bob Beck. Housing in Jackson is a problem for seasonal and low-income workers, but increasingly it's also a problem for middle-income earners. Among them, some vital occupations like teachers. Wyoming Public Radio's Aaron Schrank reports on Teton County School District's struggle to recruit and retain top educators. Kelly Matthews teaches special education at Jackson's Coulter Elementary School. She rents a studio apartment in town, above a garage workspace. It's not an optimal place, but it's a roof. Matthews makes 67 grand a year. That's more than the $58,000 average for Wyoming teachers, but it's not enough to get Matthews into a two-bedroom place for her and her eight-year-old son. He gets the bedroom, and Mom gets the couch. So you've been sleeping on the couch for? For two years. What she'd really like is to own a home. But the median home price here is $965,000. So Matthews isn't holding out much hope. Is that, would that ever be an option for you? Never. And it won't be an option for Jess Tuxerer either. He moved from Montana four years ago to teach language arts at the middle school. When I moved here, my salary more than doubled. Still, his best option in Jackson was this converted barn he rents for $1,000 a month. Well, this living room, <laughs> kitchen, um bathroom and bedroom and that's that's really it so do you know how many square feet it is eight <laughs> i don't know it's not very big at all tuxurer loves living and working here but knows he won't be able to do it forever i can't buy a home here so therefore i can't really stay here you know if i want to have a family i can't raise a family in this house this problem for teachers like tuxurer is a big headache for teton county Superintendent Pam Shea just retired after 30 years with the school district. Needing more space for a growing family usually is a trigger for what we call the five to eight year churn, where we see folks leave to go to more affordable areas or areas where their families can be of support to them. Shea says when it comes to hiring teachers and keeping them around, she's competing with school districts around the country. Even with the high salaries, the housing crunch here really shrinks the applicant pool. It's, it's one of those unwritten interview questions is, can you afford to live here? And Shea says when top teachers can't move here or stay here, students suffer. We know teachers, second to strong principals, are the most powerful influence on uh, student success and achievement. The school district just unveiled one tool to combat this problem, its first ever subdivision of affordable homes for employees. They were built with the help of the Jackson Hole Community Housing Trust, Ann Cresswell is executive director there. Affordable housing is as basic to the essential infrastructure in Jackson Hole, Wyoming, as any other road, water, or sewer project is. Cresswell drives me down a cul-de-sac in Wilson to a parcel of land called Schwabacher Meadows, 11 three-bedroom homes that all look pretty similar. Exactly the same. We save a lot of money on architecture fees when we do all the same. Teachers bought these units for about $400,000. That's 60% of market rate. Cresswell's organization has developed similar workforce housing for hospital workers and city employees. If we fail to house the people that live and work here, then we will not have 
a quality workforce, will not have a quality system of education, and we will suffer in all respects. So yeah, give me a, a quick tour, I guess. Okay, so this is little Johnny Howell. The unit we're touring belongs to James and Mandy Howell. They both work for the school district. This is a house that we never thought we would have ever have lived in, in Wilson, Wyoming, where there's, you know, millionaire homes, billionaire homes all over the place. So it's, it's amazing. We're lucky. The Howells were living in a two-bedroom condo with two little kids. James says without this affordable home, his family would have had to leave town. But he doesn't think it should be considered a handout. You know, we paid $403,000 for this home, which was, you know, somewhat of a stretch for us, but we're glad to do it to be able to stay. And I think a lot of people look at affordable housing as somewhat of a charity case. I'd like to think of people to think of it more as an enrichment in your community and creating a more diverse community. For some teachers, finding affordable housing means crossing state lines. Jennifer Marlar bought a three-bedroom home in Victor, Idaho, eight years ago, for less than 300 grand. Marlar commutes an hour each way to teach seventh graders at Jackson Hole Middle School. It's brutal. On the way home, you're tired, you're exhausted, you want to be home, and that hour feels like eternity. Marlar likes her job, and she's good at it. She's one of only 7% of teachers in Wyoming who is national board certified. But her daughter Aniston will start school in Idaho in just a few years. Unfortunately, I think what's going to end up happening is I'm going to have an expiration date in the Jackson Hole School District. And I'll probably have to resign there and try to get work on this side so that I can be a part of my community that I live in. And another highly qualified teacher will leave Jackson. For Wyoming Public Radio, I'm Aaron Schrank. For the most part, 2014 was a tough year for the University of Wyoming football team. The Cowboys finished with only four wins and eight losses. But while the team enters this season with a few question marks, the Pokes have one major strength, their ability to run the football. Wyoming Public Radio's Bob Beck says the Cowboys returned two of the top running backs in the conference in Sean Wick and Brian Hill. And they're hoping to ride them to a bowl game. The Cowboys have been in fall training camp all month as they prepare for their season opener against North Dakota. The questions about Wyoming are many. How will its new quarterback fare? Will a revamped defense and offensive line be able to make the necessary improvements? And will the kicking game be better? But the one area they feel pretty good about is the fact that they have two amazing running backs. I feel like we both share similar abilities. You know, we're both fast, both strong, smart runners. That's senior running back Sean Wick. He's listed as one of the top backs in the country and is just 881 yards away from the school record for running or rushing the football in a career. He was on his way to an outstanding season last year when he injured his hand against Colorado State. His replacement was freshman Brian Hill. Hill was sensational for the rest of the season, finishing that game with 121 yards and two touchdowns. The next week, he was the National Player of the Week, running for 281 yards. He also added 106 yards receiving. Wick eventually came back, and they combined for over 1,500 yards for the season. 
There is one slight problem, though. There are two good running backs and just one football. Offensive coordinator Brent Vigan isn't worried about it. He says a healthy competition has developed between the two. Now they're both motivated kids, self-motivated kids, but nothing motivates a guy more than seeing another guy that can get the job done. And, you know, I think Sean obviously set the bar at the beginning of the season, but Brian set it at the end. And, and you know, those guys, I, I certainly will, that competition will feed each other as the other guys in that group. Hill laughs and says the competition is real. Oh, it's a great competition. Nobody wants to be second on the depth chart. Coach Bath came to us and said we're going to split the carries 50-50, but I know I still don't want to be number two, and I know he don't want to be number two. Center Rafe Kiley doesn't care which one is in the game. He says they are both impressive. They won't let themselves be stopped. Kiley adds they are also physically strong. When they lift, they lift with the linemen. They're all, I mean, Sean's at over a 400-pound bench press right now, which is just phenomenal for a guy his size. Fellow offensive lineman Chase Roulier says strength matters. When you have backs that are that strong, they're able to just run people over and get those extra one or two yards at the end of every play. And I think that's a big key for, for what our running backs can do. Wick stands out to his teammates for his second effort ability. He gets several extra yards with defenders hanging on him. Wick says it's because he has a chip on his shoulder. All my life I've been doubted, you know. Uh, people didn't think I was good at all. They didn't think I could make it here. And since I got here, I'm going to, you know, just throw it in their face. Hill, on the other hand, was a highly touted freshman, but he's learned a lot from Wick. He believes that he, he's going to run through anybody on the defense, and that's how he plays, and he actually does run through a lot of people on the defense, and that's, that's where it all starts. you got to have a mindset. can't come out there scared, and that's what he taught me the most. Because Hill and Wick are so good, Wyoming expects teams to bring more players closer to the line of scrimmage in an effort to stop them. Offensive coordinator Brent Vegan says that will require the offense to be more successful in completing passes to keep the defense honest and then force them to pay attention to more than just Hill and Wick. The Cowboys will test this all out when they open the season on September 5th against North Dakota. For Wyoming Public Radio, I'm Bob Beck. Thanks for listening to this edition of Open Spaces. You can hear the entire show or individual segments through our website, wyomingpublicmedia.org. Anna Rader is our web editor. You can also sign up for our podcast on the website, comment on our stories, and send us great ideas for future segments. We also invite you to become a fan of both our Wyoming Public Radio News Facebook page and a similar page for Wyoming Public Media. All of our reporters are on Twitter. You can find me under the name Bob. Open Spaces is a production of Wyoming Public Radio News.